Hey everyone, my name is OJ Tucker, host of the OJ Tucker Podcast, the only comedy tennis podcast that talks about our political and societal culture as a whole. My name is OJ Tucker, as the name would suggest. Happy Tuesday. Hopefully you guys enjoyed your weekend, spending time with your family, friends, watching the Olympics as well. There have been a little bit of tennis news and a little bit of news outside of the tennis world. In terms of news outside of the tennis world, we can get into Anthony Fauci wanting people to wear masks despite being vaccinated. We can discuss Tucker Carlson getting yelled at by some dude in Montana. Mark Maron and Joe Rogan have beef as well. NPR's hit piece on Ben Shapiro and what it truly shows in terms of discourse in America. We can also, in terms of tennis news, we can discuss Nick Kyrgios' comments on clay tournaments as well as my weekly pick and Kinishi Kori uh, versus Andre Rublev. But where we'll start off for today will be an injury update on Andy Murray. So if you guys didn't uh, hear the news, happened on Sunday morning, I would say, Andy Murray would, decided to withdraw from Olympic singles, men's singles play. And what had transpired or what happened was Basically, I'll just get a tweet from Mark Woods from at Mark Britball, hashtag tennis Olympics with the Olympic uh, dash sign. Andy Murray reveals a quad strain behind his withdrawal from men's singles will stay in men's doubles. The medical staff have advised me against playing. Oh, this is Andy Murray's words now. The medical staff have advised me against playing in both events. So I'm, I have made the difficult decision to withdraw from the singles and focus on playing doubles and essentially suffered a quad strain, uh, decided to retire from singles play. This is my overall thoughts on Andy Murray deciding to retire. First off, I want to say the Olympics have been, in my opinion, not that great. Um, and it really shows you the importance of the ATP. And I know people like to just, uh, you know, diss on the ATP. You know, they may diss on them for not adequately playing, uh, adequately pay- paying their players and whatnot. And, you know, there are times where, you know, people will look at the ATP and well, say, wow, well, this is not what we expect from the organization. They should be more responsive to their players, more responsive to uh, the women as well. But overall, you have to at least admit the product for the ATP is a lot better than that of the Olympics. And part of it is because the accessibility factor for the ATP, while the channels may get a little bit dicey here and there, while it is a little bit difficult to get from one channel to the next, and, uh, you know, they don't really update you as to the schedule as to what they're playing, because obviously uh, they play until it's over and the next match starts as soon as the last match on that court ends. But it's a lot better than the Olympics, because with the Olympics, it's very, very hard to keep track of what matches are happening and more importantly speaking what on what channel they're playing on like it's very very difficult to really get an accurate assessment on that so now that i had my spiel on the olympics over i just wanted to get that out of the way and more importantly it's very difficult for people in the tennis world to put out footage of the olympics the ioc is very gung-ho about those who are interested in putting out clips of their content on Twitter, on social media, which is dumb. And it's a very antiquated way of thinking. I think if you're, if you're going to be a new organization that, you know, creates sports, you got to allow people to share it on social media and have people discuss it in detail, you know, to not have people like share footage of the Olympics. I think it's kind of dumb. And more importantly, it shows uh, the legacy media's way of thinking, which is not necessarily uh, fostering conversations and ideas being shared. Uh, so I just want to get that out of the way. In terms of 
Andy Murray suffering a quad strain. Like, I'm a big Andy Murray fan. You know, I, I've made that abundantly clear in this podcast. You know, he's my favorite player. He's my favorite tennis player. He's the tennis player that I grew up watching. And he's the person that inspired me so much to really pick up a racket after his Wimbledon win in 2013. And, you know, when you see this, you're like, okay, he has a quad strain. You know, he's obviously, he's obviously had uh, problems with his groin and uh, as well as his lower body as well. But I don't think this should be a cause of concern, mainly because this is the first of its kind for Andy Murray with his quad. And it's, again, it's a, it's a strain, so it's not an injury. It's not a full-out injury. He didn't blow out his quad at all. It's, it's something that, you know, it's a minor injury, but I'm sure he'll pick it back up, you know, once the U.S. Open comes or even when the Australian Open comes, you know. So I think that's something that's very important. And it, it goes to show you the unplayability of the tennis courts in Tokyo, right? I mean, we heard a Dutch coach last week. I was talking about it in my last episode. Go check it out, the space variant, where a Dutch coach basically said that the courts were not playable. And he was also saying that it's very slow. It's, you know, it's not necessarily as fast-paced as, say, like the hard courts that they've grown accustomed to, the players have grown accustomed to. So that's obviously a, a thing that, you know, a lot of people uh had in mind getting into this tournament and when you're seeing Andy Murray go down um that's not a good sign for the tournament and I wouldn't honestly I honestly wouldn't be surprised if more and more individuals from the tournament do get injured because it does seem like one of those situations very similar to that of the Wimbledon this past year where there's going to be a lot more injuries that can deter play and actually can prohibit actual competitiveness on the court so keep that in mind and I uh, just want to end it with saying, like, like, I still can't believe Andy Murray's gold medal win in 2016 was, like, five years ago. Like, five years ago, I was, like, a senior in high school. Like, it's crazy to see, like, just how far five years ago was. And, you know, and honestly, like, it, it sort of puts you in, in perspective as to, like, man, that this is, like, crazy. Like, this is just crazy to see, like... Not only Andy Murray's, I wouldn't say regression, but definitely his maturity level and more importantly, how his age has essentially been a factor in his matches, uh, but more importantly, just how how impressive Andy Murray's career is on the other side of on the flip side of it, how impressive Andy Murray's career is where he's able to succeed in the Olympics, but uh, not necessarily able to bring it uh, in the Australian Open. You know, I, I think that's one of those things where uh, I really wish I would easily trade Andy Murray's two Olympic wins for one Australian Open win and one French Open win. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of Andy Murray fans feel the exact same way about it as well. You know, for me, I value majors way more than, say, the Olympics. And I would easily trade for both of those two gold medals he won in 2012 and 2016 to go right back to majors one. Because for me, like, majors one is, like, the ultimate barometer of, of success. And, you know, if you're succeeding in the amount of majors that you're uh, achieving and the accolades that you're prospering or in, in getting out of those four majors, then I think that's a lot more uh, beneficial than say, um, than, say, the Olympics. So, you know, it's it's been a very interesting time for the Olympics. You know, it's been a, it's been a time where, I, I honestly, like, maybe I'm, like, the only person in the room. Um, and obviously there have been great matches. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we'll definitely get into Kei Nishikori and Andre Rublev. Um, but it's one of those things where I see a lot of people 
not as excited as, say, Wimbledon or the French Open. I, I feel it in the air. I feel something is wrong. And I, th- I just thought it would be important to at least discuss that or at least share that info. So, all right. Let's get into one match that I actually watched in its entirety. I was out, out, of, out of town, so I couldn't really watch the Olympics. Uh, but, you know, there was one match that I was really interested in watching, and that is Kane Ishikori versus Andre Rublev. So if you guys didn't watch, Kane Ishikori beat Andre Rublev 6-3, 6-4. Very good match for Kane Ishikori. I never really saw Kane Ishikori as a threat. Uh, to win the Olympics, but he is a hometown hero. You know, this is playing in Tokyo. He's from Japan. So obviously, you know, he's a person that I'm sure a lot of people in Tokyo want to succeed and want to uh, see uh, win and, and thrive and be able to survive in this environment. So it's great to see a person that's a local hometown hero uh, being able to pass the first round of the Olympics. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where I did not expect Kenny Shikori to get a win you know i really didn't you know i know it's easy to monday morning quarterback this uh but it's one of those times where i truly did not know he could win and part of it was because we just haven't seen kane ishikori in these spots and positions who that can you know be a viable threat you know it's, it's one of those things where he has sort of regressed over the past three four years you know he hasn't really shown um, himself to be in, in a lot of ways I do see a, a lot of similarities with Andy Murray where you know he doesn't really showcase his skills like outside of the uh, outside of the Olympics but when it comes to within the Olympics I mean that's when you see how great of a tennis player he is so you know Kane Ishikori you know great player uh, or played a great match I would say more specifically great match against Andre Rublev and again Andre Rublev is no joke you know I mean Obviously, I, I hyped him up so much during the Rotterdam Open. And, um, you know, there was a point where I thought Rublev would be a better player than Medvedev. Obviously, looking back on it, I was a little bit high off the Andre Rublev train. I'm pretty sure all of us were. But, you know, when you see how great he was playing, um, not only against like against his opponent at the Rotterdam Open, but also against Kane Ishikori, because I did think Andre Rublev did have, have a good match. I mean, he was, I would say doing well at the baseline, you know, I mean, he had explosive forehands and backhands. He really could find those tight spaces and tight holes where he could really uh, execute well under those circumstances. And, you know, he really did well uh, leading uh, in the Rotterdam Open. He sort of regressed from there. But, uh, you know, when you see Kane Ishikori and Andre Rublev, you know, a lot of mistakes that Andre Rublev made to this point, he sort of continued it and it sort of exacerbated from there. You know, I mean... Kane Ishikori is an amazing person who's consistent at the baseline, and he's one of those individuals where you watch and you're like, okay, if this goes in a rally, two things can happen. One, he's going to get a winner based off like one millimeter of a chance for to get a winner, or the other side, his opponent will have a lot of unforced errors or forced errors. Most of his opponent's ground strokes won't be within the vicinity of the court, and more importantly, uh, his opponent will not be able to get it over the net and you know when you see the amount of slices and when you see the amount of pace that Kane Ishikori added to his ground strokes that definitely played a role in Kane Ishikori's win over Andre Rublev you know and one of the problems that Andre Rublev have had during this match was that he was not able to execute on the break whenever he had the chance to return serve chances are it would not be going his way you know I mean 
the first serve is a is an important dynamic on the tennis court and you know if you're able to use it correctly man oh man is that a weapon you know we've seen some of the best of the best be able to use serves to their advantage and on a more aggressive side i would say you know nick Kyrgios, john isner these are some of the individuals some of the examples that one may give when it comes to being more aggressive when it comes to serving but when you see kei nishikori what kei nishikori is able to do is be more tactical and be more strategic in terms of how he's going to place his how he's going to you know focus on ball placement and now he's going to build off a point based off that serve so when he comes to holding serve i mean kei nishikori is just amazing and you know I, I think he's one of the best on the tour when it comes to hold holding being able to hold serve through that outlet through that perspective and you really see that and really it's shining through against that match against Andre Rublev. And I, I, it's one of those times where I'm just very interested to seeing what's next for Kei Nishikori. Do I think he will win it? No, but I wouldn't be shocked if he got like a bronze medal or if he was like in the top five or whatnot, because he is a person that definitely does bring the goods uh, in terms of the Olympics. You know, he's one of those individuals where it's like night and day with the Olympics. On the regular ATP tour, you may see, you know, somewhat of a inconsistent path for Kei Nishikori. But when it comes to the Olympics, I mean, it's night and day. I mean, Kei Nishikori is built for the Olympics. For some reason, he's just able to turn the Jets on and really play to the best of his ability. So congrats to Kei Nishikori on the win. Uh, I honestly, like, I'm really excited to see what's next for uh, Kei Nishikori and on the flip side for Andre Rublev as well. You know, I mean, obviously there's going to be the hard, uh, hard court part now in the schedule in the calendar year in the atp calendar year so that's going to be uh, quite enjoyable quite interesting to see because obviously um it's going to be happening in mass in in uh, the united states so it's going to be quite interesting to see um because you know it's the atp city open the western and southern open you know if if past results or any indication as to future i uh, future uh results then uh hopefully andre rublev can be successful uh because he was very successful in that indoor hardcore tournament that was the uh, rotterdam final so um that's one of those things that i'm really interested in watching because I, I still think andre rublev can have a major one i still think that is the case for andre rublev and if he's able to do it then that's great because frankly it's it's one of those things where I just like the dude. You know, for some reason, he's a likable man. Um, you know, I think he's one of the more likable individuals on the on the circuit. And to see him win, I think that would be great for tennis. I, I really do. So I, I'm a huge Andre Rublev guy. Like, I, I think we all should be because uh, he just brings so much enjoyment for the sport. And honestly, like, he's, he's, he's a good, he's a dude that, like, when you watch him, you're like, man, that's such a likable dude. Like, man, oh, man, is, is he a person that I just want to uh, see him succeed? You know, so... That's just my overall thoughts on Rublev and Nishikori. So I didn't expect that to get so sentimental at the end. But uh, all right, so we got the Olympics part down. We got uh, Rublev's match versus Nishikori. We got Andy Murray withdrawing from the Olympics. Let's get into something off the court, which I thought would be a little bit interesting to point out. Nick Kyrgios comments on clay tournaments and the sort of weird scheduling that occurs with the clay tournament. So if you guys don't know, Nick Kyrgios basically responded to ATP Tour, basically saying, and I have the quote right here, but he was basically talking about, the ATP Tour basically tweeted out basically uh, about uh, a clay tournament that's occurring 
um, right now that's not in the French Open season, uh, but a clay tournament that's happening right now that a lot of people are playing in. And the ATP Tour tweeted out three great semifinal lineups are set. G-Stad, Kolpriva versus Rude, Gaston versus Dejer, Umag, uh, Ramos, Vinolas, Alcaraz versus Alcaraz, Richard Gasket versus Altmaier, Los Cabos, Cameron Norrie versus Taylor Fritz, Nakashima versus John Isner, who will advance, question mark. And Nick Kyrgios basically responded to it saying, bro, why is there still clay laughing emoji bringing in absolutely zero fans, zero crowd, zero hype, zero fans, zero crowd, zero hype in all capital, capital letters. It's detrimental to the sport. My God, excluding Gasket because he playing for points for just points. This is just sad, man. No wonder we are going backwards. And this is my opinion on Nick Kyrgios' comments on the clay season. I think he's right, right? Obviously, I saw a lot of people on Reddit, on social media saying, no, this is important for play. This is important to showcase a different style of tennis, and it's great. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, look at the ratings for all of these tournaments. And again, I love tennis. You know, I cover it. Uh, but if, when you look at the ratings for all of these tournaments... Nick Kyrgios is right. None of them bring zero fans. They bring zero crowds. They bring zero hype. At least with the Olympics, while I do have my problems with it, while I do have my qualms with it, while I do think there are certain things that they need to justify, uh, rectify, I would say, uh, I think allowing clips to be uh, sh spread on social media is like one of the first things that they need to change. What are you doing, IOC? But at least it brings in a little bit of hype. I know there are zero crowds because of COVID. There are zero fans because of COVID. But at least it does bring hype for those respective countries that are being represented. And overall, the Olympics right now are getting people talking. You know, obviously, we ha I have my gripes with the Olympics. But overall, it does give people something to talk about. With this, it's difficult. It's, it's difficult because it's so out of the norm. It's so out of the ordinary. You know, I don't think players playing on clay in lead up to a hard court major is good is beneficial for their overall mentality for their overall ability to play on hard court because again it's a very different playing services right the clay court is very different than that of hard court and what you may be proficient at when it comes to hard court may not be so so great when it comes to clay i mean we've seen players who have played great on the hardcore but haven't really played that great on clay you know pete sampras is one of those individuals so uh, in that instance i do think that it's not that great when you see a clay tournament out of the out, out of out of outside of the french open schedule out of, outside of the french open season you know it's not that good and it's not a, i don't necessarily think it's a good look when it comes to um spreading the game of tennis or spreading the sport of tennis i should say you know i think what should what the atp should focus on just my opinion i think they should focus on more american opens that are currently ha that are happening in the next month or so and you know when you see the western and southern open when you see the city open you know the city open which is happening in dc you know these are you know the tournaments that they should you know build up to and really have like matches that can showcase you know different players from different nationalities that can uh you know sort of you know, happen and, you know, have something that can lead up to 
uh, one of the, the better majors of the Grand Slam, uh, of the four Grand Slams, you know, the U.S. Open. So I think that's one of those instances where I think the ATP should focus on, which is allowing these players to focus on hardcore play because that is what they're geared for and that is what their mentality should be focused on this next month. I don't think going back two, three months and, you know, playing on clay is going to be a good look for tennis. I think it does not do anybody any favors at this point. I think it has a time and place, and that time and place is definitely during the earlier parts of the year, you know, and lead up to the French Open, to Roland Garros. But when it comes to leading up to the U.S. Open, I don't think it's a good look. And I think Nick Kyrgios is right. I think he's on the money. He's This is one of those instances where I, I fully agree with him. And, you know, when I saw tennis Twitter, when I saw Reddit going after him, I'm like, come on, like, this is a little dumb to be going after like out of all the things that you you could be like going after players this is not one of those instances like this is one of those things where you should be very supportive of because if anything this actually helps the lower ranked tennis players play better and it allows them to get in that process in that mindset to compete for hardcore instead of just mindlessly chasing you know these atv points just to you know be on the ranking you know because the lower ranked tennis players are at a disadvantage when they're focused on clay tournaments as opposed to the major. So that's just overall my opinions. I think Nick Kyrgios is right, and I think that this is one of those instances where we should all be in unanimous support of. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, honestly, like, yeah, that that's that's my overall uh, opinion on it. Uh, and uh, hopefully, uh, Nick Kyrgios can uh, uh, can uh, win as well because it's one thing to say say it you know it's it's another thing to bring it on court so obviously he's grown he's aged he's matured and i think that's great for him uh i i just think that's also uh something that should at least uh be uh discussed so all right um let's get into news outside of tennis so npr i think last tuesday wednesday i would say uh ran a hit piece on ben shapiro saying how facebook is funding right-wing ideas and I have the title of the article right here, Outrage as a Business Model, How Ben Shapiro is Using Facebook to Build an Empire. And the article basically goes into detail about how Facebook is placating to right-wing ideas. Like when you go on to the news, like top news searches, it's mostly uh, right-wing sites, you know, the Daily Wire, the, the, the Daily Wire I, I don't know why I mispronounced Daily Wire, uh, but the Daily Wire, the Daily Caller, Dan Bongino, uh, which is like one of the most hilarious names ever. I mean, there was like a little song about it last year during the RNC, uh, some parody song about Dan Bongino, which go check it out if you haven't. It's very funny. And overall, um, this is my overall opinion on it. I think what this truly shows and basically what, what, what NPR's hit piece truly shows is that NPR is basically acting as if they are above Ben Shapiro, as if they have this moral high ground to Ben Shapiro, which is a bunch of bull. I mean, let's be honest here. I think NPR is doing the exact same thing that Ben Shapiro is doing, but they're just doing it to the more culturally, culturally progressive sort of neoliberal establishment, right? NPR has no issue with Facebook funding left-wing ideas if it supported their narrative, if it supported liberal ideas and supported the ideas that were okay by NPR. You know, they would have no problem with the New York Times being the number one news search for Facebook. They would have no problem with Vox or with any other sort of liberal outlet that, you know, may sort of align with the neoliberal 
establishment. You know, I think this is one of those instances where they, they truly do not care if it fit their narrative. But because it goes for Ben Shapiro, because it's something that they do not like on terms of a cultural front, because I think they have a lot in common in terms of uh, their foreign policy. But when it comes to the cultural ideas, when it, like they do disagree on a lot of issues. You know, I mean, Ben, ben Shapiro may not be that into trans bathrooms. NPR is so gung-ho about trans bathrooms, you know? So it's one of those things where they have no problem with, you know, a left-wing site having that, you know, ability. You know, they may draw the line at, like, say, like, I don't know, like an actual left-leaning or actual left-wing site. I don't know. I don't know any left-wing sites, basically. Maybe Jacobin. I don't know. But they have no problem with, say, like, that sector, you know? So that's sort of my thing. And and when it comes to NPR, and this is what I don't get from NPR, they're publicly publicly fund, funded by fans of theirs, but they have zero care in the world for what their fans want to talk about. And, and that's something that I really don't get about NPR, it's, it's, is that it feels very much pro-government. You know, it, it feels very pro establishment pro status quo and, and i mean i remember tuning npr in for like five ten minutes and they were, they were talking about like how russia is our biggest enemy and the evils of vladimir putin and don't get me wrong i'm sure vladimir putin is a pretty bad person you know but to want a cold war a second cold war with russia and feeling that to your fans and i'm sure most of your fans do not care about that whatsoever but to like fuel that uh, that's not a good look that's not a good look whatsoever and this is my overall thing is that we need to be able to have conversations with people that we disagree with i think it's very very healthy to have that you know i think the most vain conversations the most superficial conversations are the when everybody in a group follows a certain ideology when it comes to having a cultural progressive ideology and having a pro neoliberal ideology i think that's a very very dangerous thing to very to value to have you know i mean those conversations are conversations that i do not want to be invested in and when you see ben shapiro you know succeeding on facebook while i disagree with ben shapiro on a vast majority of issues you know a vast majority if me and ben shapiro had a conversation chances are it would not be good like we would have very much a disagreement on a lot of issues don't get me wrong Having said all that, it's important to at least hear him out and at least hear out his perspective on a lot of things regarding foreign policy, economic policy, cultural issues as well. I think it's very important to at least hear him out. You know, I think because it gets a better understanding, a better perspective as to what that sort of coalition believes. In. You know, whether or not you like Ben Shapiro or hate Ben Shapiro, you can't deny that he speaks for a coalition. You know, he, he speaks for a forgotten part of America that sort of value the cultural policies that he values. So I think it's very important to at least hear him out and, you know, to at least have a conversation with him. You know, when you see Joe Rogan, right, the go to goats, right? Joe Rogan is a person that will have right wing people on. And at no point does he try and censor them. At no point does he try and say, oh, no, 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 no. You can't say that word. You can't say that word. You can't say tranny or whatnot. He doesn't say that. Instead, he's like, OK, let me have a conversation with you. And while I may disagree with you, at least we can get somewhere in the middle. At least I can dissect your argument. And, you know, as this podcast episode goes on, at least I can at least poke uh, flaws at what you're saying. And I think that's a way better way of going at things instead of just trying to censor them, instead of just trying to, like, you know, throttle their search results. So I think that's something that NPR should take a page out of, out of the Joe Rogan handbook, which is 
allowing these people on your program and sort of, you know, having a back and forth and having a fruitful, productive conversation instead of just like writing hit pieces on them. I don't think that does anybody any good. So I think that's what NPR should do instead of just writing a hit piece is that if you truly want to battle his ideas, if you truly want to, you know, poke at him, then just have him on your program and, and make a fruitful, productive conversation and be able to agree to disagree. I think that's a very important thing that we've forgotten as a society. So, I mean, that's just my overall opinion on it. I think what NPR did is very disgusting and dumb. But I wouldn't, I'm not really that shocked by it, honestly. I, I'm really not. So that's just my overall opinion. I think uh, shame on NPR for doing this. Uh, but I don't expect anything much from them as it is. So uh, anyway, so let's get into Mark Maron versus Joe Rogan. So uh, Mark, Mar- Mark Maron and Joe Rogan went at, uh, well, Mark Maron on Two Bears, One Cave last Monday with Tom Zagura, great podcast if you're like a middle-aged dad in you know, middle America. Uh, great podcast if you are. I, I love Segura and Burke Kreischer, but if you're a person that, you know, watches NASCAR and wears Ed Hardy t-shirts, uh, this is the podcast for you. So Two Bears, One Cave, good podcast if you're like a middle-aged dad. Uh, Mark Marin guest hosted it because Burke Kreischer is filming a movie. And basically, Marin went on to basically shit on Joe Rogan and those who decided to go to Austin. Marin was talking about Rogan saying how he got $100 million to say, I don't know, man. Like, yeah, that, those were his, wor- his words, not mine. And, you know, while crapping on the three feature acts that decided to move there, he basically said it was a human centipede where it's Joe Rogan, Elon Musk, and then three feature acts on both sides, which was hilarious. I love the way he said it. Um, and a lot of comedians, you know, sort of were like, oh, how could you go after Joe Rogan? At the end of the day, it's all comedy. It's all fun and games. I'm sure Joe Rogan found it funny as well. Overall, I thought it was good. I thought it was enjoyable. And I don't really get where the frustration is coming from. Like, I, I truly don't. It's one of those things where, like, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's a joke. And I think people should value jokes still. I mean, at the end of the day, they're all comedians. I think they could handle a bit of jokes here and there. Um, again, they, I mean, Joe Rogan is like, has nine figures in the banks. So he should be okay with jokes. So, um, and I love Joe Rogan. I love, I like Mark. Um, and having said all that, I think it's funny. You know, I think Brendan Schaub on The Fighter and the Kid was like, well, he's going after Rogan. I don't think that's good. I mean, come on, Brendan. Like, let's all have fun. Let's all enjoy ourselves. We're only here for a short time. You know, I, I know you, you're you in debt to Rogan because of what he's done for your career. Uh, but having said all that, you have to admit it's pretty funny. Um, and I think that's one of those things where, you know, Mark Maron... Um, one of the things that I've, I've no, noticed about Marin is that he's a very interesting dude. Uh, he's a person that, you know, has had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, abuse, you know, in his life. You know, he's a person that, you know, recently his w- wife, I would say, the person he, that he was seeing passed away. Uh, and that's very sad. So, you know, I think, you know, comedy is the best way to heal. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, if you're able to use comedy as a healing mechanism, then it's great, you know, and... You know, one one of the things that I like uh, that I enjoy about Mark Maron is just how, um, and again, like I know how like he likes to go after Rogan, uh, but having said all that, like Maron, not to like crap on Maron because I don't want to crap on Maron, uh, but I heard that Barack Obama interview, and man on oh man was it fawning like man, like you didn't ask any like hard questions like no hard questions whatsoever, 
you know like i know i'm getting away from the topic a little bit but like when you tell when you see like marin like talk to these high level like high like people in high powers and high places of power it's like you didn't ask him any hard questions and that's something that i get like for a lot of interviews like you could say that about rogan i wouldn't i think he asked he actually asked like some hard questions here and there to people um overall like when you know when you know rogan you know it's more of a conversation but like with marin it's, it's a little different because with his fan base like they expect him to like his fan base i would say is a lot of like like hipstery dudes in like bushwick portland seattle that probably voted for bernie and when you see or hear that you know podcast interview that he did with obama i'm pretty sure his fan base was like not that happy about it you know if i had to guess they were not happy with how sort of you know how out like how fawning he was of of barack obama so and I see a lot of similarity between Mark Maron's fan base and like Jimmy Dore's fan base or like Kyle Kalinske's fan base. I think all of those three fan bases have like a very similar, uh, all very similar type of fan. You know, it's all like vegan white hipstery dudes that, despite being vegan and you know, despite you know protesting out in the streets, they're like still like obese and overweight. Like that's what I would assume. They're all their fan bases have, you know, for Kyle Kalinske, maybe a little bit different, but those for, but for Jimmy and Mark Maron, that's what I would assume is their fan base, you know, so, uh, that's what I wanted to like get at, get out of, you know, with this conversation because, uh, you know, it's, yeah, uh, Mark Maron, Joe Rogan, they, 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 they harbor very different fan bases and I, I want to see their fan bases go after it. I don't want to see Mark Maron and Joe Rogan go after it. I want to see their fan base because I want to see like the Irish dude and like, tap out shirt tap out shirts going after like the dude into like pearl jam and like flannels and spent way too many hours dissecting the lyrics to the grateful dead like that's that's who i want to see go after you know a person of the joe rogan fan base versus the versus a person from the mark Marin fan base that's one I, what i want to see i want to see them duke it out i don't want to see Marin and joe rogan duke it out because honestly like i think comedy beefs are stupid and dumb and pointless but I want to see their fans duke it out. You know, I want to see them create like a second like 2020 summer riot. You know, <laughs> like I want to, I want to see that. Yeah, I, I I wish I could remember off the top of my head of this that Seattle thing where they like built like a village in Seattle. I don't know. I forget the name of it. I it's on the it's off the top of my head, but I I can't name it. You know, I, I forget it, but. I want to see those two fan bases go after each other. I, I think it's long. It's been long overdue. Put it on pay per view. You know, honestly, if if we could have like a fight card of like Charlemagne versus Donnell Rawlings, of Andrew Schultz, Joe Budden, of Jake Paul versus uh, Conor McGregor, and then you would have like on the bottom like Mark Maron's fan base versus, versus Joe Rogan's fan base. That would be hilarious. That, that would be like, I would, I would pay, that would be like the first pay-per-view I would ever pay money on. Like, that that would be amazing. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that would be amazing. Like, I would love to see that pay-per-view. Um, I don't know why I included, like, those other two fighters, but anyways. Uh, yeah, because I know, like, Budden and Schultz have, like, problems with one another. Uh, but, you know, overall, you know, I mean, Schultz is killing them. Even on his second podcast, the Flagrant 2 podcast, or his second podcast, but I think Flagrant 2 is doing better than Brilliant, Brilliant Idiots. 
his numbers are doing way better than Joe's, like way better. On, even on SoundCloud alone, just on SoundCloud alone, way better than Joe. Uh, so, yeah, that's sort of my opinion on all that. Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully we get we get to see that pay per view someday, and uh, hopefully Joe Rogan is not crying uh, about Marin uh, making fun of him because he's got a lot of money, and frankly, Joe Rogan is a dude that we should all aspire to be. We should all aspire to have fruitful, productive conversations with people that we disagree with, with people that we align with, and more importantly, just get a more un- better rounded uh, perspective of just the world that we see around us. So, and I think Rogan does that a lot better than Mark Maron. I think Mark Maron is a lot more dismissive of those on the right. I think Mark Maron is a lot more dismissive of those who don't agree with him or don't align with him. And, um, you know, I think Rogan, that's why Rogan makes a hundred million, you know? Uh, but having said all that, I thought it was a funny joke. So that's where I'll, I'll end off with Maron and Rogan, you know, two Italians fighting. Who would have thought? Um, all right, so let's get into Tucker Carlson getting yelled at by some dude in Montana. So basically, if you don't know, Tucker Carlson hosted Tucker, Tucker Carlson tonight on Fox News, was heckled by some dude in Montana, and, and you know, they were having, like, a very, like, sort of back and forth in a fishing store. He wore, like, a fishing hat. And he said, you're like ripping apart America to Tucker Carlson. And, you know, Tucker Carlson's like, stop it, stop it. You know, he's very hush-hush about it. And, you know, the, the dude in the fishing hat was like, I don't care. I don't care if your family's here. I don't care if your daughter's here. You're ruining America. So basically, this is my opinion on it. I think the dude in the fishing hat is a dummy. I think he's abhorrent. I think he's a, a pussy. I think he's a person that is a piece of trash. I mean, he, he's a dirtbag uh, through and through. But if you're a public figure, and I think this is very, very important to uh, point out, if you're a public figure and if you make a living by talking and by going after certain people and by, you know, trying to, you know, ostracize them. I'm not saying Tucker Carlson does it, but I'm just saying if you are a person, if you are a commentator, if you are an analyst, and I say that in the sports world as well, you know, Stephen A. Smith, Skip Bayless, because it all it is all political theater, it's all theater, it's all wrestling. You know, if you are a person that makes a living by talking, you should expect people to get up on your face and critique you. Critique you. You know, that comes with the baggage. If you're going to be a person that makes millions, if not billions of dollars, I'm not saying Tucker Carlson makes billions of dollars, but if you're a person that lives in a wealthy, affluent area, making a living by talking and being a public figure, you should expect there to be repercussions. And I, I don't say, I don't mean physical assault, but if, you come, if it means like verbally assaulting somebody, somebody or if it comes to, you know, having a confrontation with, with somebody at, you know, really bad situations or circumstances, you should expect that. That comes with the baggage. You, you pick this life for a reason. You know, if somebody came up to me and said, I don't like what the, the what he said about Ben Shapiro, I don't like what he said about, you know, tennis or about a certain player, you know, it's one of those things where I would be like, okay, like, I, I know I, I don't want to be in this, but I know this comes with everything. This comes with me having a podcast and putting myself out there. You know, nobody forced you to be a public figure. You know, nobody forced Tucker Carlson to get a cushy, you know, job, a, a get get a cushy gig at Fox News under an uh, under an air conditioned room. Like nobody forced Tucker Carlson to be in this position. So when you choose this position, you should expect people to be mad at you. And again, I'm not defending the heckler at all. I think he's a piece of trash. He's a dirtbag. I made that abundantly clear. 
But if you are a person that makes money out of ostracizing individuals and, you know, having brash or unabashed opinions on certain uh, certain ideas and certain topics, uh, uh, certain hot button topics of the day, you should expect people to not necessarily be aligned with you. You should expect people to sort of heckle you. Uh, it's not good, but it comes with the baggage. It comes with the life. It comes with the life of being a, a television presenter, you know. As a comedian, you know, while I, I don't like hecklers, it's a part of being a comedian. You know, you're going to get hecklers as a comedian. You're, you're going to get those drunk people uh, that, you know, think that they are the show go and heckle you. You know, it's not ideal, but it's going to happen. And this is this is what's going to happen if you are a television presenter. If you are a television commentator, you're going to get people mad at you. And you just have to accept that, you know, so... I mean, if somebody ran up on Stephen A. Smith, you know, if somebody like verbally like went after Stephen A. Smith and chastised him, I would be like, yeah, that's dumb, but that's what you expect. I mean, you can't go after Shohei Otani for not speaking English and expect zero repercussions. You know, freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom of of repercussions or freedom of consequences. You know, you're, there will be consequences. There will be consequences for your talking. You know, there will be there will be consequences for what you say. You know, I think it's important to at least get that in, out of the way. You know, I think that's something that, you know, people should understand. And hopefully Tucker Carlson, this wasn't, uh, hopefully this wasn't the first time that somebody uh, ran, uh, hopefully this isn't the first or last time because there will be more times. And again, like I actually like Tucker Carlson on a bunch of issues, you know, him going after the NSA, him with uh, his opinion on withdrawing troops from countries, his opinion on freeing Julian Assange. You know, these are all opinions that I, I agree with, with Tucker Carlson. But, you know, I would say the same thing about somebody on the left. You know, if you're you if you're Rachel Maddow, if you're an Anderson Cooper, expect their, expect people to go after you. You know, expect people to criticize you and, and, you know, go up on your face. I'm not defending their decisions. I'm just saying that comes with the baggage of being a public personality. So, I mean, that's just overall my opinion on Tucker Carlson getting yelled at by some dude in Montana. It's not a, it's not ideal, but it's something that you should expect when you're when you are a public figure and when you make money uh, by discussing hot button issues of the day. So, and that's just my overall opinion, though. Um, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, people understand that. You know. All right. Um, let's get into our next topic. Something that I'm not that hopeful for but anthony fauci wants people to wear masks despite being vaccinated so breaking 911 on twitter says new new information fauci says cdc recommending that fully vaccinated americans wear a mask in public is under active consideration i think this is dumb this is stupid this is holy crap what are we doing this is de- defying the laws of science it's one of those things where i'm like why as an american should i value those who aren't vaccinated they understand the repercussions to their actions they understand the consequences and they understand what they are going through you know they understand the decision that they're making right if you are a person that's unvaccinated you know the consequences to that you know that you have a higher chance of getting covid than say those who aren't vaccinated or that those who are vaccinated you know that you have you are not being that you sh- you will not be able to go to certain things without being able to have a vaccine passport. And again, I'm not in support of a vaccine passport. I want to make that clear, but it's going to be a thing. You know, I, I think we we can all admit that a vaccine passport is the inevitable. I think it's going to be the new way of tracking people. I I wouldn't say there's a microchip in the vaccine. I think that's a little too weird. But I do feel like it's going to be like 
in addition to the passport that we have when we travel outside the country it's going to be added to it and added to like certain other things and it's going to be a way to like sort of monitor people and those who are vaccinated versus those who aren't it's it's just going to be a part of how we live essentially um so you know it's just dumb you know i think people are sick and tired of covid and you know restrictions and the lockdown i mean we're done with lockdowns and i I don't think we'll ever get back into lockdowns and overall you know i remember seeing something on reddit but you can't put the toothpaste back into the tube it's not possible you can't put people that have freedom to get back into living in a world with less freedom you know once you give people freedom it's hard to take that freedom back you know it's hard to take that much autonomy and and that much uh, like like a, of a stranglehold on your life it's hard to take that away from you you know so and you know i was in a family function this past week celebrating somebody's birthday um and there were like 100 to 150 people there and at least half of the people there were doctors and at no point did any of these people wear a mask and again this was for a kid's party right like there were children there None of their children wore masks. None of them had a six feet distance between them. And, you know, I was talking to some doctors there. I mean, obviously, they don't specialize in in the immune system. They're not immunologists. You know, I mean, they're all, you know, gastroenterologists and pediatricians and whatnot. Um, and they were like, yeah, if you are vaccinated, you don't have to be fearful of it, you know. And I think that is the sentiment for not only doctors, but just for people in general. And, you know, that when I when I heard that, I'm like, okay... Now that I'm vaccinated, I think it's over. Last week, I had my skepticism about like maybe there being a second lockdown, which I don't think will ever happen. Uh, hopefully not. I'm crossing my fingers. But now that I've like had conversations with those people, uh, I can confidently say that I don't think there will be a second lockdown. I just don't. Um, the first one was, was horrible. And I think there will be widespread outrage, as there should be if a second lockdown ever were to take place. Uh, maybe outside of the states maybe that's happening if you're outside of the states let me know on youtube or whatnot about what's happening there and hopefully you guys can get your freedom back because the lockdowns are horrible i mean it's 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 a massive like like slap in the face to anybody who's a working class individual um so yeah uh, that's overall my opinion on that i think Hopefully, there's not a second lockdown. And honestly, shame on Fauci for suggesting that people should wear masks despite being vaccinated. We were told that if we were vaccinated back in May, that we were not to wear masks. And this is just dumb. And honestly, there should be hatred for this. There should be widespread outrage for this. And I'm sure a lot of doctors are not that happy about this as well. So, okay. Uh, Hopefully, I got that rant out of the way because I just had to get that. Uh, I saw that yesterday, and I'm like, okay, I gotta at least discuss this because I know I'm not the only one that's feeling this. I'm not. I, I know I'm not the only one that has this much resentment towards those in power because they just screwed this up so much. Um, but anyways, let's get into my conclusion, my weekly pick. So every Tuesday, I recommend a piece of art, a film, a book, an album that I really enjoyed you know enjoy uh, really enjoy listening to or watching or viewing and for this week i'm going to recommend claro's sling so i'll I'll be honest with you i was not that big of a fan of this album uh i i'll be honest with you i thought it was a good album a commendable album i wouldn't say it's my top five i think it's a nice decent listening experience 
Uh, it's very soulful, melodic, some great tracks from this album, such as Amoeba, Partridge, Blouse, Reaper. It has a very soft rock folk pop feel to it, which is what you would expect from Claro. Um, and what do you expect from Jack Antonoff's production, right? Like when you hear Jack Antonoff's production, when you hear Lana Del Rey, Laura Taylor Swift, the chicks formerly known as Dixie Chicks, you sort of expect that to happen. You know, obviously it, there are different like, you know, ranks to it. You know, obviously, you know, Taylor Swift may take, may take it in a more folksy, more folksy direction as opposed to like Lana. You know, uh, Laura may take it to a more poppy direction. You know, Kevin actually more of a R&B, hip-hop influenced way. The chicks more so country. But generally speaking, it has a very sort of folk pop, like soft rock view to it. You know, whenever you view, whenever you view all those albums, it has a very soft rock feel to it. And, you know, it's going to, you know, Jack Antonoff is going to make a lot of money out of the, out of his career. I mean, I can just see it. You know, when you saw his time at Fun, you know, which was basically a band with formed by two other people in Jersey that had a very, if you like Queen, it has a very sort of like opera feel to it. So if you like Queen, you might like Fun. Uh, if, if you don't know that song, We Are Young or uh, Some Nights, go check those out. I, I like that band. Uh, if you like Bleachers, that's also his own band that you should probably listen to. Not as good as, say, his production, but uh, on the female vocalist side, but a good, a good band nonetheless. And, you know, this is one of those albums where I think it's, it's a stepping stone for Claro. You know, while I didn't necessarily enjoy this album as much as, say, like Ice Age or like Mogwai, it's an album that I can like listen to and say, okay, I, I understand, I, I enjoy it, I enjoy some songs, but I can't wait for that next album. Whenever she releases that next album in a year or two years, I, that's going to be the album where I'm like, okay, this is going to be like good. This is going to be amazing. I wouldn't say good, I would say amazing. This album is commendable. It's good. It's enjoyable. It's breezy listening. Um, and I know a lot of people go after Claro for being an industry plant. You know, since her dad works at like private equity or something, she, like her dad works for like marketing with like m like massive multimedia conglomerates or like Spin and like PepsiCo and whatnot. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, if you guys don't know it, everybody in the arts, the vast majority of people in the arts grew up with rich parents. Nick Kroll, the comedian from Georgetown, friends with Mulaney, Dakota Johnson, uh, I mean, her parents are like Hollywood royalty, Julian Casablancas, which I love, I love The Strokes, you know, The Strokes are one of my favorite bands, John Krasinski, I can go on and on and on and on. The majority of people in the arts come from affluent background, come from an affluent background. That, is, that doesn't mean you have to hate them. I'm not saying that you should hate them whatsoever. You just have to keep that in mind. Uh, so again, like it's easy to go after Claro, but if you're going to go after Claro, I mean, you might as well go after like 95% of the music industry, uh, cause most of them come from rich parents. The vast majority of them do. So overall Claro sling, it's an enjoyable album, you know, 42 minutes and some change. So it, it's one of those albums where, you know, it's reasonably listening. It's one of those, it's one of those albums where you can listen to it in the background, you know, with your like children and be like, okay, children, this is like a good album to listen to with you because you know it can put you to sleep for me i enjoyed it because like you know i was like very enthralled in it but if you have children it's like the perfect album that you can like put your children to sleep to uh so overall good album claro sling and overall that will be all the time i have so guys thank you so much for watching thank you so much for tuning in make sure you like subscribe and click the bell icon for notifi notifications down below 
Also, if you're listening on iTunes, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. And if you're listening on if you're if you're on WhatsApp, make sure you spread the word on WhatsApp. Get it going, get it more active. Um, in terms of what I'm going to talk about on Thursday, who knows? I'll talk mostly about tennis, um, talk about the Olympics, and talk about things that are outside of the tennis culture, and um, move and go on from there. So, guys, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, and I'll see you guys on Thursday. So guys, peace. See y'all.